I know it's not a school day, but uh, we're going to do a little math lesson today. I don't know if it's a lesson, but a little test or something, pop quiz. Thank you, sir. True or false, just kind of think about this in your head before you blurt out what you think you know the answer, okay? True or false, 5 plus 5 equals 11, okay? Okay, true or false, 5 plus 5 equals 11. I told you to think about it, Deb, and you just blurted it out, but that's all right. We've been taught all our life, 5 plus 5 is not 11, amen? I mean, I don't know if that's amen worthy, but there it is. It's tr- according to what we know, it's true. Um, you know, in the world as we know it, that is false, isn't it? Uh, everything that we know, everything we've been taught, everything we believe, we wake up in a world, and if someone were to tell you today 5 plus 5 equals 11, you would think, am I in a different universe? No, you would think you're wrong. You're crazy. Whatever you're saying doesn't make sense with the way that we do things in this world. I want to introduce you in a little bit to a world where 5 plus 11 or 5 plus 5 equals 11 is true. Okay? So you'll just have to put that one on the shelf. We'll pull that one back here in just a little bit. Here we are in this fourth week. We've been staring at the same text, uh, these Beatitudes. And uh, I hope you've been looking at this at home because I am just now beginning to like get this after preaching on it for the uh, third week out of four weeks. Uh, it's finally starting to... to creep in and get beyond my defenses and all the ways that I try to keep the Word of God out of me uh, and the challenging parts of it, here we are. A couple of things to review is that when Jesus is giving these blessings to the people, uh, first of all, He is describing this different world. He's he's, He's not just simply saying, these are the things that are true as you observe them like 5 plus 5 is 10, he is beginning to describe a whole different way of being. And that way of being is called the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. It's God's world order. It's God's way of doing things. It's a world in which God is enthroned and everything and everyone bows down to that God, worships that God, and and therefore has a right relationship and treatment of that God and one another under his rule and reign. So that is what the kingdom of heaven is. And Jesus is describing this is what that world and that kingdom looks like. So as we kind of sit here along with the listeners of Jesus, we can also see that Jesus is not simply saying some timeless truths that have always been true. He's declaring and speaking about a whole new reality. Jesus isn't going around saying, hey, 5 plus 5 is 10. Everybody's like, yeah, amen, brother. 5 plus 5 is 10. We all knew that. He is talking about something new and different, bringing a new world into being. Next, it is important for us to know as 20 what are we in, the 21st century Americans, that Jesus is speaking to people in his immediate context who are likely not in great positions of power. Maybe a few, but most of his followers uh, in this speech, they're probably not people who have a lot of power in their lives. But many of us who hear this today, we have a lot of power in our world. We have financial power. We have political power. We have power in our professions, and we have some power in our relationships. We, we enjoy these kinds of, of powers in our world, and that's not as necessarily a bad thing at all in any different way. But it does press us to ask the question, what does it look like for us to join in this audience? 
when Jesus says, blessed are you who poor, well, what if I don't feel like I'm poor? What if he says, blessed are you who, are mourn, who mourn, well, I, I, I haven't really mourned a whole lot in the last uh, couple months, you know? What, what does that mean, and what does that look like for us? Well, Jesus does jump in, and he says, in his very first blessing, he says, blessed are those who mourn. What does that mean? Does that mean anybody out there who's crying gets a free blessing? Oh, you're crying? Here, here's a blessing. Oh, you didn't get your sucker today? Here's you a blessing. Oh, life didn't go your way? Here's you a blessing. That's, is that what Jesus is saying? Anybody who cries? Is he just kind of um, nurturing a victim mentality here? The squeaky wheel gets the grease. Hey, if you want enough, I'll give you a blessing. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? I don't think Jesus is passing out or enabling that kind of behavior. More likely, he's saying something like, you followers of mine, because you follow me, if following me leads you to places in your life where you mourn, then you're blessed and don't ever forget it. Because following me is worth it no matter what the cost. Following me is worth it even if it leads to things of mourning in this world. Now, I think when we mourn for good reasons, Jesus probably says, I'm with you, I'm blessing you. But I think in the context of this passage, he is speaking about a very specific kind of mourning. And this is the kind of mourning that is grounded in the discrepancy between our world and God's kingdom world. You see, these two worlds that exist at the same time, there's a discrepancy. They're different in some ways. Sometimes they line up nicely. Sometimes there are stark contrasts like 5 plus 5 is 10 and 5 plus 5 is 11. And the question I think we have to ask ourselves is, do we notice the discrepancy? And when we see it, do we grieve the discrepancy? Do we lament? Do we mourn that discrepancy? For Jesus, this discrepancy of the two worlds was very apparent. It was the discrepancy between the kind of people that God had created originally and envisioned Israel to be and to become and the way that Israel actually had run the whole project into the ground because they really thought it was all about themselves. They failed to be a light to the nations. They failed to be a blessing to the world. And so many of their sins really brought them to that place of failure, worshiping false gods, all kinds of other things they did. It was all about themselves, and it wasn't about the kingdom of God that he was trying to set up. Jesus sees that discrepancy, and it's one of the passages in scriptures where we see him mourning. He looks at the walls of Jerusalem as he's coming into town on his final journey, and he says, oh, Jerusalem, if only you would have listened. If only you wouldn't have killed all the prophets. If only you would have been who God wanted you to be. There's a discrepancy between what they could have been and what they ended up being, and that causes Jesus to mourn. It causes him to lament. Blessed are those who mourn the discrepancy. You know, the more that we get in touch with the character of God and the will of God and what God wants in his holiness, and the more that we see that and we see the difference between that and the world, then we will also get in touch with that discrepancy. And hopefully that will do something in us and to us. Hopefully we will let that be done 
in us. That we won't just go stick our head in some happy place, but that we too will, will take notice and mourn ourselves. When we see the church being consumer-driven rather than servant-focused, we will mourn the discrepancy. When we see our youth leave the church never to come back because the seeds of faith were not planted deeply enough, then we will mourn the discrepancy. When we look around us and see the broken homes that children in Lubbock, Texas are growing up in, then we will mourn the discrepancy. When we see people living an out-of-balance life, chasing money, accomplishment, achievement, food, drink, sex, drugs, filling the void of their life with whatever they can find in the things of this world, then we will mourn the discrepancy. When we see a world where authentic community is so hard to find because we live in a very isolated and overly individualistic world, we will mourn the discrepancy. When we look into our own lives, when we look in the mirror and see our own souls, and we see things in us that are out of line with God's design and desire for us, then we will mourn the discrepancy and we will confess our sins as well. Blessed are those who mourn. These are the people who, while living in the justice systems of this world, are actually longing for a higher justice, a higher righteousness, what's called the righteousness of God or the justice of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God's justice and righteousness, for they will be filled, says Jesus. You see, people who see this kingdom of God and the discrepancy between the kingdom of God and the way the world really is and the places where they don't line up, not only will they mourn, but they will hunger for and they will long for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done right here in this very earth as it is in heaven. People who see this kingdom begin to act in ways that are characteristic with the kingdom. And it almost could look like they're acting a lot different than the wisdom of this world. Blessed are the meek. That's one of the descriptors of such people. Another word for that might be humble. Blessed are the humble. The other day I was writing in my journal when I have some time to pray and, and kind of clear out a few hours just to pray and to read my Bible and there, there will be these deep truths that come to me that I believe God is speaking to me and when I hear something it kind of resonates real deep with me I write it down in my journal because once I get busy about my day I tend to forget those real true deep things you know details right so the other day about a week ago I wrote this in my journal getting in touch with my powerlessness is getting in touch with God's powerfulness. Getting in touch with my powerlessness is getting in touch with God's powerfulness. I felt that very deeply, and that's as articulate as I could make it be, so there it is. The, the meek, however, they're those who realize that they're powerless. They don't really have a lot of power to change anybody. Kind of like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. We can't really change people, can we? 
You really can't change me. I really can't change you. And life is better when we realize that. When we realize I can't change the world myself. And when I try to start doing it, when I start, try to start really changing other people, I'm encroaching upon God's territory. That's the Spirit's job is to change people. That's Jesus' job. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who have a single and undivided heart, wholly devoted to God, to Jesus and His kingdom. You know, the world just doesn't know really what to do with people who are humble, who are meek, who are pure in heart. The world tends to do several things. Maybe take advantage of such people. See them as weak. Maybe make fun of them or even persecute them. Or maybe the world would just simply ignore or dismiss them as irrelevant. Or maybe the world would simply pity or feel sorry for such meek and humble people. But why would Jesus bless those people? Why would Jesus bless those who are poor in spirit, those who are meek, those who are humble, those who are pure in heart kinds of persons? Well, one of the reasons why Jesus would do that is because he is acknowledging that this kingdom will last forever and that someday he will return. And upon that return, people will not be able to stand before him. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord when he returns. Now, while I believe that with my whole heart, in my theological judgment, I think that it is not God's desire or Jesus' desire to force people to bow down to him. Because that's really not in his nature of dominance. I think it's more his desire that people would voluntarily lay down their lives before him. You know, I've heard people say, man, I just can't wait till Jesus comes back. Can we not wait till Jesus comes back? Usually that just means my life really stinks and I just want all this mess to be over. That's kind of another version of that, I think. Some might be more righteous, but that's kind of what I hear. When people just want Jesus to come back, it's like, man, it's going to be a long week. I just wish Jesus would come back. But you know what? Have you ever thought about why he hasn't come back yet? You think Jesus is late? Did he get lost in traffic? Did he get lost in the cosmos somewhere? Why is Jesus waiting? What is he waiting on? I think he's waiting on people to bow down. I think he's waiting on people to repent. I think he's waiting on people to turn to him. And he may be waiting on us to act in ways that might lead others to repentance. By the way we live our lives as humble, meek, poor in spirit kinds of people. And so maybe we don't need to try to rush him. I think that the Bible tells us we are invited to long for his coming. But to long for Jesus' coming isn't just like sitting around going, come on, when's it going to be? 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 But to long for the coming of Christ means to seek the kingdom of God, to do the kind of things for that world that already exists. 
that the world would somehow, in our own powerlessness, through our powerlessness, the world would be transformed. Longing for Jesus' return means that we live in his kingdom now so that that day might be hastened by the way that we live. If you follow Jesus, then you're already blessed. Whether he returns today or in a thousand years, he'll come back soon enough. He hasn't forgotten us. And all those people who think we're dumb because we believe in such things, well, they'll know then, right? It's okay. There's no need to sweat it. But for now, that's really not our disposition. God doesn't work through the powerful like he tends to work through the powerless, the meek and the humble and those who hunger for righteousness and the peacemakers and the merciful. That's how God tends to work through his people. Let us not confuse meekness with cowardice. You see, meekness looks like insignificance in the eyes of the world, but in the kingdom of God, it's the hidden weapon. It's the Trojan horse of God's kingdom. And that's how things work in God's kingdom. It's a bit of a different reality, kind of like 5 plus 5 is 11. 5 plus 5, if my math is correct, only equals 11 or does equal 11 if you go in a base 9 numerical system. We've been living in a base 10 numerical system ever since, you know, for hundreds of years. But you go to a base 9 numerical system and it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, 11. I got a nod from the math teacher, so that's good. Woo, I didn't test this out before. It's in that reality that 5 plus 5 equals 11. Our world just got blown, didn't it? If we can have those kinds of assumptions about things called math, maybe we are also having certain assumptions about the reality of the way the world is and this world that Jesus is proclaiming. That maybe it is real, maybe it is true, and maybe it will happen. Blessed are you. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, My grace is, he's, he's saying what he hears God saying to him. He says, My grace is enough for you because power is made perfect in weakness. So I will gladly spend my time bragging about my weaknesses so that Christ's power can rest on me. In our 11 o'clock, one of the reasons why our uh, altar table's on the floor is because in our 11 o'clock service, we're going to have some of our third graders read the scripture. It's a uh, third grade Bible day, and so they're going to read the scripture. And while they're a little cuter than you are, Mike, it's, uh, and while Mike's a good-looking guy up here, there's something about a child, isn't it, that makes you go, wow. I love praying over kids up here. They're, they're, kids are my favorite. I love them. And... I think it's more than just sentimentalism. I think it's more than just, oh, look how cute they are. It's a little bit of that. But I think there's something about the powerlessness of a child that gives us a window into the kingdom of God. Right? When we see them, we see, we see something of God's kingdom. That's the way the kingdom works. So the next time that somebody says something that hurts you or angers you, Consider the weapon of meekness and humility. Consider the weapon of mourning. Consider the weapon of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Consider the weapon of noticing the discrepancy. Sure, there are times when we must fight against injustice. 
with our strength, especially if we're defending other people. I fully believe that. But I think there are times when we just need to leave that to God and let God defend us and let God defend himself because it's through our poverty of spirit, our humility, our meekness, our mercy that God changes the world. It is through the cross of his son, Jesus, that he redeems the world. And it is through us living our lives patterned in the same way that he will continue to do the same. So brothers and sisters, Let's just trust in God. He's going to take care of us. You are blessed. Let us pray. Lord, we just come into your presence today and we simply relax because there's nothing that can happen outside of our lives, in our lives, that is bigger or outside of the scope of your kingdom. And you are in the business of taking all things, Lord, and using them for good for your kingdom and your glory. And so today we simply come and we lay down our lives before you. The times we don't get our way, the conditions around us that cause us to mourn, the conditions around us that that challenge us to be humble. When we don't get what we want, when we don't feel like we're in control, oh God, we come and we lay our lives at your feet. And we ask, oh Lord, that you would be glorified by the way that we live as your disciples. And that we would live in such a way that people would bow down and bend the knee and worship you. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven today. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.